We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, worship team. Good morning again. How are we doing today? I like that. If you're joining us online, please say hello. Let us know that you're there. We're glad that you are here with us because we are unified by the power of the Holy Spirit no matter where we are. Is that right? Right. Amen, right? Before we start this morning, I want to introduce you to somebody new. We have a new office administrative assistant. Her name is Kim Shorman. Oh, it's not there. (laughs) Her name is Kim Shorman, and um, Jane and Robin Sutton Brown recommended her to us. So she is our new office admin. Uh, If you get opportunity or close to the building during the week, swing by and and say hello to, to Kim. She's smart. She intimidates me. She's an engineer, and she teaches music. She does math tutoring. She does English tutoring. She's already told me about verbs and adverbs and things. It's very, very scary. So keep her busy, please. (laughs) This morning, we continue on in our series, Bible Peeps. And that's not peeping in the Bible, though we are peeping in the Bible. It's about people of the Bible, looking at different characters, big names, some small names, looking, to, looking at their lives, how they lived and the, the, the circumstances that they lived in, and pulling from that things that we can apply to our lives today to help us live better, victorious lives in Christ. And as I said earlier, today uh, we're going to look at, at Esther. Now, you very often hear me say... Um, This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. My wife said, they're all your favorite passages of Scripture. And I know I overuse that that statement. And I'm not being dramatic because in the moment, it is my favorite passage of Scripture. So let me be up front with you. This one's not one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And as I said, I'm a little nervous because I'm going to present Esther in a light that maybe is not the Sunday school light that, that you're used to, but... Before you drag me out there to beat me, just bear with me because I have a purpose for doing this. Um, I believe that that Esther, you know, what's the moniker of the story of Esther? For such a time as this, right? I believe that Esther is a story for such a time as this. And that we'll be able to see some uh, connection point with, with, with how Esther lived, how we lived, the culture that she lived in, and the culture that we live in. Okay? So that's, that's where we're going to go, and that's why I'm doing this. Uh, I, want us to, I want you to think. I want to get you to think a little differently this morning. So I'm going to present this differently, and you may not like the way that it sits with you, and that's okay. Because sometimes it's good to be challenged, it makes us think, and sometimes we've got to look at things a little bit differently. And it's absolutely fine for you to come up to me afterwards, like Mr. Randy Thompson already has, and says, I don't see it that way. (laughs) And my wife did. And Kim did. (laughs) And my daughter Amy. But apart from them, everybody's in agreement with me. For such a time as this. (laughs) So let's pray because I need it. (laughs) Heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy presence with us. I thank you again for your holy presence with us. I thank you for this message. Father, I thank you for the way that you opened up my eyes. And Father, I pray that you would just close my mouth to those things that are not of you, that are not from your spirit. Father, I don't want to speak up here. I would ask you that you would speak through me so that the words that come out of my mouth are not my words, but they're your words filled with grace and transformative power and love. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you don't have any notes today. I don't have a lot of scriptures. Here's why. The book of Esther is 10 chapters. Now, I put out a thing on Facebook. Some of you may have seen it, and I, and I gave a link for you to listen to the book. It's about 40, 45-minute read. I've gone through it a couple times this week myself. But obviously, we don't have time to go through 10 chapters here this morning. So I'm going to tell you the story of the book of Esther. Okay, it's going to take me about 20, 25 minutes. Most of the message is telling you the story. So be patient. 
And then the last five or ten minutes is why. Why this is important, okay? So, set the scene. This takes place in, in, in the city of Susa. They call it the citadel of Susa. It's, a, it's an armed, fortified city. It is the capital of the Persian Empire. And it takes place about a hundred years after the Israelites are taken into exile by the Babylonians. So just to give you a little background there. Israel, God gives them the promised land. He says, this is all yours. If, if you stay faithful to me, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. It's going to go well. Well, we all know how that story went. Just read the book of Judges. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord over and over and over. It got to the point where he warned them. He said, listen, if you keep going down this road, I'm lifting my hand. My blessing from you. And they kept going. The Babylonians come into the promised land, take all of the Israelites prisoner, and take them back to the country where, where Babylon was set up. There are a few people, a few stragglers left in Jerusalem. For a hundred years, they lived in exile in another country. Now, eventually, another nation takes over them, the Persians take over the Babylonians, and they tell the Jewish people, you can go back if you want. So that's already happened. So that kind of sets the scene. Now, there are four main characters in Esther. There's uh, Esther, obviously, Mordecai, her cousin, uh, King Xerxes. Some translations have him as Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, which is the Hebrew name for the Greek King Xerxes. We're going to call him Xerxes because I can say that better. And then, of course, there is uh, Haman or Haman. So let me go through these. Xerxes, he is a weak, morally compromised man. Uh, He's the most powerful man in all of the Persian Empire. He's the king, but he's given to bouts of drunkenness, gluttony. He's a philanderer. He's indecisive, and he's easily manipulated. Not someone you really want as the king, but he's a powerful man. You got Haman. Haman's the bad guy. He's the villain in the account. He is arrogant, and he is proud. And in the story, he gains the king's favor, and he becomes the top official in all of the Persian Empire and all the provinces. Now, there's an important detail here. There's a few important details. When they come, I'll tell you important detail. Okay, he is not Persian. He is an Agagite. And as such, he hates the Jews. There's some history there. So I'll fill you in on that a little bit later. I love the way the Bible ties together. Sometimes it's not obvious, but there's a couple of things in the book of Esther that that lean back. And and I love these things. One we're going to cover, one we're not. Mordecai. He is a Jew. He is Esther's oldest cousin. He adopts Esther, raises her after her parents. She loses her parents. And all through the account, he remains um, her confidant, the person that gives her advice, her guide. He is an official in the king's court. So he's got a good job. He's He's no slouch. And of course, we've got Esther, who is the heroine. She's brave. We pad this. She's brave. She's brave. She's very brave. (laughs) Her Jewish name is Hadassah. But Mordecai gets her to change her name to Esther to hide her Jewish heritage. And the reason for that is that Mordecai knows about Haman and his hatred of the Jews. So the story, are you ready? Strap in because we're going to go through this quick. Story begins with King Xerxes throwing two huge parties, one 180 days, one seven days. The 180-day party is for all the big officials throughout the empire. The seven-day one is for the local people in Sousa, Susa. Why is he throwing these parties? Just to show off his wealth and his splendor. Just to give you a background into Xerxes, it, this is right in the scripture, Drinking wasn't required at the party, but it was recommended. So that's, that's his mentality. He's a bit of a, he likes the wine. At the conclusion of the second, the seven-day party, Xerxes is drunk, 
and he decides this would be a great time to get his wife, Queen Vashti, to come in and parade in front of all his friends so he can show off his wife. I've got a pretty good-looking wife here, guys. I'll bring her in. Now, Vashti is holding her own party for the woman of the palace. And when the officials go to Queen Vashti and say, hey, your husband wants you to come on in. He wants to parade you around because he likes to show off all his pretty things and you're one of those things. She says, no, not doing that. I don't blame her. Doesn't go well for Queen Vashti. The king, you can imagine, he's embarrassed. He's angry. He goes to, the, to his special advisors and he, and he asks the question, what, what should I do about Queen Vashti? And they said, we need to put out a, um, what do they call it? Not an edict. Say it again. Decree, thank you. We need to put out a decree to all the men and all the women throughout the land that the men are to be the boss of their homes and the women are to do as the men say. Otherwise, this whole thing is going to fall apart. So they put this decree out there. This is serious. Sounds like a really bad soap opera, doesn't it? And then they decide, we've got to kick Queen Vashti out. We need a new queen. Enter Mordecai and Esther. Esther is extremely beautiful. And the decision has been, we're going to send officials out throughout the empire and they're going to look for all the good-looking virgins. And they're going to select some of the good-looking virgins. They're going to come back to the palace and through a process that we'll go through in a minute, we're going to pick one to be the new queen. So Esther, she's extremely beautiful and she's right next door. Mordecai works in the palace. And she is selected to be part of this pageant. Now, Mordecai tells her to change her name to Esther. He knows about Haman. And uh, she begins this process that takes her on this road to become queen. Now, here's where I'm going to divert away from the Sunday school image of this story. In the Sunday school version, poor Esther is taken from her home against her will to be part of the beauty contest, the winner of which becomes queen, right? That's true. Now, while that's true, there's a different perspective we can take on this. In this culture, there is no falling in love. There is no meeting your soulmate and off you go into the sunset with your soulmate and you're happy ever after. That didn't happen. Spouses were typically picked by mom and dad. They've got a daughter, they go out to look for a suitable husband for the daughter. They've got a son, they go out to look for a suitable wife for their son. If they find one, then arrangements are made. Contracts are often drawn up. If everything's good, voila, we have a marriage. She has no choice in it, typically. He has no choice in it, typically. It's arranged. That's the way it was. Still that way in many places in the world right now. When the officials come to town looking for a virgin to go live in the palace and become queen, I'm thinking there's going to be some competition for this position. We're looking for someone for, for, for our girl. She could become queen. This sounds like a good deal. They're not hiding their daughters in the back room. They're out there. Look at my girl. Very pretty. Doesn't cook, but... Because you think about it from Esther's perspective. If she's got to marry John the blacksmith's son from the next village over, life is going to be hard. But not with this deal. You never have to do the laundry again. You never have to prepare a meal again. You never have to tend the goats, the sheep, or clean up the donkey's pen. You never have to draw water again. You get to live in a palace with the best clothes, the best food, in the best place. You don't have a choice anyway. This sounds like a good option. Didn't think of it that way, did you? Gets worse. So in essence, this is really like a beauty pageant and the winner becomes queen. Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Esther or the situation she's in. I'm I'm simply telling you what it was like in these times. This is how it was. So here's how it was going to work. These virgins stay in the king's harem for a year. King's got two harems, one for his wife, one for the potentials. 
She's in the potential category. All these virgins go in this harem, and they're going to be in there for a year. They get beauty treatments. They get all kinds of things. At the end of the year, without being too graphic, they get to spend one night with the king. If the king is pleased with them, he may ask for them to come back. But for most girls, they spend the one night with the king. Then they go to the second harem where the king's wives are, and they never see the king again. Unless he asks for them by name, they never come back to the king's chambers again. So there's probably, who knows how many women are in there. But this time, the stakes are higher because this time, the person who pleases the king becomes queen. The ante is upped. Now, this is where you're not going to let me. Esther is up for this contest. She wants to win this contest. First thing she does when she gets in the harem is she wins the favor of the guy overseeing, the eunuch overseeing the harem. She gets the best room. She gets the best treatment. She gets the best food. She gets the best diet. She gets given seven maid servants. So she's going for this competition. Now, when her time comes up, 12 months, she gets her night with the king. She gets told, you can take anything that you want from the harem with you to please the king on this night. She's a smart cookie. She's a shrewd lady. She doesn't take anything. She goes to the chief eunuch and she says, what is the king like? And she takes the stuff the eunuch tells her to take that the king likes. She's up for winning this contest. She does. She spends a night with the king. He's all googly-eyed. This is the one. He makes her queen. He makes a holiday. The whole Persian Empire have a holiday in honor of Queen Esther. And he gives gifts to everybody because of Queen Esther. So she's she good. She competes in this thing. She wins this thing. The story continues. Mordecai. One day, Mordecai is on duty at the king's gate, and he overhears two eunuchs plotting to assassinate the king. He gets word to Queen Esther, because he can't see Queen Esther. Once she enters into the harem, She has no connection with the outside world. She lives in a bubble in there. But he knows the eunuchs. He knows the people in charge. He gets word to the eunuch to tell Queen Esther two people are plotting to take the king's life. They go to the king. The king investigates, finds it's true, gets these two eunuchs. They execute them, and they write it down in the king's chronicles that, that Mordecai saved the king's life. Now, this is an important detail, important detail right there. Story continues. Enter Haman, the villain. Haman, we don't know why, but he has won King Xerxes' favor, and he is the most powerful official in all the Persian Empire. So this guy's a big deal. He's an arrogant man. He's a proud man. And the king passes this edict that anybody who sees Haman must bow down to him because he's a big deal. And he loves that. He likes people to be afraid of him. Mordecai, who is a Jew, and Haman discovers that he's a Jew, won't bow down to Haman. Haman is absolutely livid. He is angry that this guy would disrespect him in this way. Remember I said there's history? And, Mordecai, and Haman comes up with a plan to get rid of Mordecai. But not just Mordecai, all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire, because he hates the Jews. So he tells the king, he makes a decree, he says, this guy, that, you know, these people, they don't like you. They stick to themselves. They don't follow your rules. This guy won't bow down like you told the people to bow down. He won't bow down. We need to get rid of them. And the king says, hmm, okay. And then Haman, to sweeten the pot, he says, I'll give you 10,000 large sacks of silver to go in the royal 
bank if you do this. He's basically bribing the king. He gives him a good reason to do it, and then he bribes him to do it. And King Xerxes easily swayed, says, I like this plan. We should do this. And then they cast a lot. It's called Purim to decide what day they're going to exercise this decree to kill the Jews. And it comes out to the 14th day of Adir, which is a Jewish holiday, which in our was March the 7th, which is almost a year away from when this happened. So it's like it's going to be a whole year before the Jews are wiped out. They both get drunk together. They're really happy. Let me tell you about the history. I love history. Last week we talked about Joshua. Sorry, no, last week we talked about Jonathan. And Saul was God's chosen first king of the Israelites. And you remember, Saul was in God's favor. Then Saul did something and he lost God's favor. This is this history. Way back in the day of Moses, when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, the first people to attack the Israelites were the Amalekites. And they were sneaky. They came in behind and they, they took the stragglers out. And God goes to Moses. He says, write this down. I will eradicate the Amalekite people. Write it down. 200 years later, Saul. Saul's on the throne. God comes to Saul. He wants to do what he said he was going to do 200 years ago. Saul, I want you to attack the Amalekites, and I want you to wipe them out completely. Men, women, children, all their animals, everything. I want them erased from the face of the earth. Pretty vicious. Sorry, God. Saul doesn't follow orders. He wipes out most of them. He takes some plunder. And the king, whose name is Agag, what is Haman? He is an Agagite. The king lives. Now, Solomon, the prophet, comes along a little bit later and he cuts the king up. But somewhere, somebody escapes because Haman, a hundred years later, is a descendant of King Agag. He's an Agagite. He has history. He remembers that the Jewish people pretty much wiped his people out. He hates the Jews. He's got this plan. He's looking at Mordecai. He's thinking, your people tried to wipe out my people, Mordecai. Well, guess what, buddy? I'm going to get you, and I'm going to get your people. My revenge will come. We're casting the die March 7th next year. You guys are done. That's the history. Okay? You got that? You still with me? All right. Bear with me, because I know this is long. We're we're past halfway here on, on this. Mordecai sends a copy of the decree to Esther, because she's living in a bubble in the palace. She doesn't know what's going on. And this decree gets sent out all through all the nation, all the empire. All the Jews know March 7th next year, boy, slaughter. What would you do? I'd get out, yeah. <laughs> Think, let's get out of here. So Mordecai gets a copy of, of the message, the decree, gives it to the eunuch. The eunuch gives it to Esther. Esther reads it. And Mordecai in there, he says, you've got to go talk to the king. You've got to reveal that you're Jewish and that this plan is against the Jews. Esther sends a message back to Mordecai. No way, Jose. Not doing it. That will get me killed. There was a rule. Anyone who approached the king without having a prior invitation, you approach the king. If the king doesn't receive you, that is punishable by death. King didn't want to be visited. Didn't want to be bothered. You come to visit me and and I don't accept you, you're done. So Esther doesn't want to chance it. So Mordecai gets word back to her. And here I've got a scripture for you. Because this is kind of the central passage of it all from chapter 4, verses 13, 15. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. In other words, if a decree has been passed... We're all in it, lady. You're not getting away with this one. 
If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief from the, for the Jews will arise from some other place. So he believes that the Jews will be saved some way, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. So he's basically telling her, you know, you have two options here, Esther. Either the mob is going to kill you, or you go to the king. He may kill you, but he might listen to you. Maybe that's why you're the queen. Esther sends word back to Mordecai. You know what? If I die, I die. I'm going to take the chance. Pretty brave. I mean, it's not a good situation, but that's brave. She goes to the king. The king receives her. I think he's a little sauced up again. He says, Esther, whatever you want, it's yours up to half the kingdom. He's in a generous mood. And she says, two things I want. I want a banquet today and I want a banquet tomorrow. And I'd like the banquet to be with you and Haman. Let's get the banquet today going. So king sends for Haman. Haman comes in. You know, Esther, she's being pretty shrewd here. Says they're sitting down. The wine is flowing. I'm sure she's making sure that they're getting good and sauced. Because we're going to talk about things. And the king, he's not dumb. He says, so Esther, what do you really want? You, you, You didn't come in. You didn't risk your life to sit here and have a banquet with me. What do you really want? And she says, I want you and Haman to come to a big banquet I will prepare tomorrow, and I'll explain it all to you tomorrow. So the king says, okay. Haman leaves. He's a little drunk. That's what it says in the Bible. And he's happy. His head's all swollen. The queen wants to have dinner with me and the king. No one else is invited. How important am I? I'm a big deal. He walks out of the palace, and he bumps into Mordecai who won't bow to him. Haman gets his... is upset. (laughs) He's mad because Mordecai won't bow to him. He goes home, he tells his wife how important he is, the things that happen. I'm going to have dinner with the queen, going to have dinner with, with the king, just me, nobody else. That's how good I am. I've got all this stuff. But that Mordecai guy, he is really burning me up the wrong way. And, and his wife and his friends come up with a plan. They say, listen, you got the king's favor. Make a 70-foot high pole, stake, sharpen the top of it, go to the king tomorrow and ask for Mordecai to be impaled on the pole. The king will do it for you. Haman thinks, love this plan. It's going to be a great day tomorrow. Get to kill Mordecai. Then I have a banquet. He doesn't know that Esther and Mordecai are related. He doesn't know that Esther is a Jewish person. He doesn't know anything. Now, I love the way God works in this, and we don't even see him work. That night, the king can't sleep. So he calls for one of his officials to come in and read the Chronicles. As he's reading the Chronicles, he reads the account of of, of Mordecai saving his life from the plot of the eunuchs. What a coincidence, eh? And he says to the official, what did we ever do for that Mordecai guy? Did we do do anything? Did we honor him? Did we reward him? And he says, no. He says, we need to do that. So next day, poor Haman, he's coming into the king. He's got it planned that Mordecai is going to be hung on a pole. He gets to the king. He's about to present his case. But before he presents his case, the king says to him, this is an important detail. He says, uh, what should the king do for a person who pleases him and honors him? Well, Haman thinks he's talking about him. Here's what you should do, king. You should dress him in one of your robes. Get one of your horses. Sit him on one of your horses. Get an an important official to lead him through the streets and, and declare to all the people, this is what the king does for the person who honors me. And the king says, that's a great idea, Haman. It's Mordecai. You lead him through the streets. You can imagine Mordecai's anger. 
Like, seriously, this guy, I thought I was done with him today. Now I'm leading him through the streets, telling everybody how great he is. Day's going to get worse from, for Haman. So he leads Mordecai through the streets. And then he goes to the banquet with Esther and the king. At the banquet, Esther says to the king, you need to know something. I, I'm Jewish. The king's like, oh, okay. He loves her. He said, but it's worse than that. This, this thing has been passed that, that all the Jews next year are going to be annihilated. They want to kill me and they want to kill all my people. Now, the, the king, as usual, is drunk and he doesn't remember the conversation with Haman from back a while. And he looks at her and says, who's going to do this evil thing? Can you imagine Haman? Oh, my goodness. He's sitting at the table. I'll bet he's shaking in his shoes or sandals, whatever they wear. Who would do this evil thing? Esther looks at Haman and says, he would. The king, angry. Why would this happen? He gets Haman impaled on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. Then he says to Esther, you get all of Haman's estate. Everything becomes yours. Esther tells him, well, the the guy that you had led through the street, he's my cousin. He's my relative. So the king says, okay, you can give all Haman's stuff to him. And I'm going to promote him up to Haman's position as the most important person in the, the empire. So poor Haman didn't go well for Haman. Time goes by. Oh, sorry, very important detail. This still doesn't solve the problem for the Jews. Here's why. When the king passes a decree, that decree cannot be taken back. The Jews are still going to die on March 7th. So the king goes to Mordecai and Esther and he says, what what do I do? I, I can't reverse the decision. That's the law of our land. He says, Mordecai, you write up a new decree to kind of reverse the old decree, and I'll sign it, whatever you write. So Mordecai comes up with a decree that goes throughout all the land to tell all the Jewish people, on March the 7th of next year, you are to defend yourself. You are to kill those people who rise up against you. He's given them permission to do this. This goes out to all the people. They have a big celebration. They they talk about the day that their their mourning was turned to laughter. It's all going to be good on the 14th of Adar. Come March the 7th, the Jews destroy Haman's family first, impale all his sons on spikes. Then all the Persian officials who were in support of Haman get killed. Next day, they go on another killing spree. They go throughout the whole nation finding anyone who is against the Jews and executing and killing them. None of the Jews are killed. It's a grisly ending, isn't it? Mordecai and Esther then establish a two-day feast that the Jewish people are to celebrate every year on the 14th of Adar called Purim, which means lotto or chance. So that's the story of Esther. It's a great story, but how do we apply any of that to our lives today? It's it's a good story, right? I mean, if you read it, there's all kinds of plot changes and things happen and the bad guy gets killed and the good guy gets promoted and all that stuff. I'm not sure that that's a Sunday school story we've been told, and and, and I'm going to make it worse now. (laughs) This is a story of secularism and compromise. Let me explain. At this time in Jewish history, many of the Jews have returned from Persia back to Jerusalem, back to the Holy Land, to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and rebuild the walls. The prophets Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezra, Nehemiah have all urged the people, you've got to go back to Jerusalem. We don't belong here. 
These are not our cultures. This is not our people. We don't do things the way these people do it. You've got to come back to the Holy Land. As God said, he promised us we would come back. Well, some people, some of the Jewish people have settled in Persia. They kind of like the Persian lifestyle. And they decide not to go. Mordecai and Esther are two of those people. They don't follow what the prophets have said. They don't go back to Jerusalem. There's a lot of hard work to rebuild. Mordecai's got a good job in the palace. She's going to become queen. It's like, I'm not giving that up. I'm staying here. I'm not going back with the Jewish people. (laughs) Contrast now how Esther deals with her situation compared to how her peer, Daniel, dealt with his situation. Both of them are taken captive to go live in the palace. Both of them. Daniel says, I'm not going to eat your food. I'm not bowing down to your God. I'm not going to take on any of your customs. If I die, I die. I'm not going to do, I am not going to do anything that dishonors God. Just not doing it. Esther says, how can I please the king? How can I win the king's favor? She comes at it from a completely different perspective. So get your stones ready. (laughs) Esther, in the whole book of Esther, God is never mentioned. Daniel, right from the get-go, talks about honoring God and not dishonoring God. Esther never mentions God one time. Then come up. She goes out of her way to win the king's favor. Even Vashti, her predecessor, said no to the king. She stood up. No, not doing that, king. She got kicked out, but she, no, I'm not compromising. Now, I'm not trying to put Esther and Mordecai down by any stretch of the imagination. Just telling you the story as it's written. Now, let me tell you why I don't like this story. And why I like this story. There are no miracles. There's no prayers. God's not mentioned in the book at all. In fact, the, 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 the men who put the, the biblical canon together struggled greatly as to whether Esther should even be included. Martin Luther himself said, I have such problem with, with Esther, I wish it had never been put in there. No miracles, no prayers. God's not mentioned. He's not consulted. It's filled with compromise. It's filled with self-interest and politicking. It takes place in a secular society where God, at best, has been put on the back burner if he's on a burner at all. And the reason that I don't like this story, it's being transparent with you here this morning, is it reminds me of my life and your life, and our culture. God's put on the back burner in our culture, isn't he? He's not mentioned. He's been eradicated from schools. He's been eradicated from the court. Sometimes I forget to mention God. Sometimes I forget to pray. Sometimes I take the easy way out. I don't speak up when I ought to speak up. Or I say things that I ought not to say when I should just keep my mouth shut. Or I do things that I ought not to do. Because I want to win. (laughs) I don't want to get caught. And I don't want to be exposed. Anyone with me here? So why is this secular book that doesn't mention God placed in the midst of of a sacred book. It's kind of neat because when I spoke to different people this week and I presented this perspective, they all came to that. They said, well, then why is it in there? I thought that's the question, isn't it? Why has God put this secular political account in the middle of this holy writing? I'll tell you why. Because God has a message for us all in there. Let me tell you why I love this account. God wants you and I to know that in a secular society where he is not welcome, not mentioned, not revered, not called upon, he is still 
at work. If we would but open our eyes and see him at work. There's all kinds of coincidences in this story, right? Esther wins the beauty contest. Mordecai happens to overhear the plot. They record it. Haman decides to kill Mordecai on the day the king decides to honor Mordecai. The king shows favor to Esther, lets her in and and listens to her stories. God isn't mentioned in it, but he is providentially at work all through it. Now, you need to understand that there's an author behind your story. And he's writing things into your life to help you turn sorrow into joy, just like he turned the Jewish people's sorrow into joy. And he's saying to you, I am here. I am now, and I am working in the midst of all of this chaos and all of this secularism and all of this stuff that you see going on. And he's saying to you, I'm working for you and I love you. If you will acknowledge me and look for me. The story of the book of Esther is this. Your past might be questionable. Your present might be questionable. Maybe you you do questionable things. Maybe you believe in a questionable way. Maybe you don't believe exactly the way I believe. Maybe you treat people in a questionable way. Maybe some of the things you do behind closed doors are questionable. You might be like a lot of us. Questionable people who forget to pray. Who don't mention God when it's convenience. Who live in a secular world and we fit right in. But there comes a defining moment For all of us. You know, when you look at Esther, the first four chapters of Esther, that's a different Esther than the last six chapters. When she decides to identify herself with the Jewish people, God's people, everything changes. But up to this point, she's compromised. She lives a life of compromise. She's she's eating food she shouldn't be eating. She's marrying a Gentile. From that point on, it changes. When she decided to align her life with God's people and ultimately with God's purpose, everything changed. She changed. And I'll submit this to you. If you align your life with the providences and the purposes of God, your life will change too. It'll take a different direction. Your story begins to take on a new life, a new strength, a new purpose. Your story begins to go in a a new direction, a, a, a better direction. Your story begins to change for the better, change of character, change of behavior. You become a greater influence on the world around you than the world around you is on you. That's important, isn't it? It's so easy to be assimilated into this world. But when you get to this point where you say, God, I'm not doing that anymore. I want to align my life with your purposes for my life. Suddenly you get a strength. You are greater influence on that than that is on you. And isn't that where we're supposed to be? Because now you become part of something bigger, a bigger story. You become part of God's story. God's story in your life. You know, you're here. Here, wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play, for such a time as this. God is inviting you to realize this morning that you are here in this culture for such a time as this. No matter what your past, no matter what your present, God has a better future for you. But you have to choose to align your life with God. Esther had a defining moment. We all get a defining moment. And I don't know where you're at with God this morning. And you know, maybe you're here or you're online and you're listening to this message for such a time as this.
But God wants to speak to you and says, I got a plan. I have a purpose for your life. It's better than your plan. It's better than your purpose. But you have to align your life with me. No more compromise. God, I want your way. I'm not very good at I, I tell you, one of my main prayers. God, I'm not very good at this. But I love you. And I want to go your way. And I trust that every day you're working in my life and you're making me better than I was yesterday. And sometimes I'll take a couple of steps back. But God is still at work. Get up there, Bishop, you idiot. <laughs> forward. Forward. If you choose to align your life, your story, with the story he is writing for you, your life will be better. That's what the book of Esther is about. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example of Esther. I know I've been a little rough on her today. But I've been a little rough on her today because I see me in this story. I see so many of the people that I know. Father, we live in a secular society that has moved you off to the side. And so often in that society, Father, you know, we're Christian on Sunday morning. Maybe it's small group. But when we get to work and when we get out there, Father, we just fit right in with that secular world. We watch the same things. We say the same things. We look the same way. Father, I begin by just saying, please forgive us when we compromise and don't hold on to your truths and speak your truths and seek your ways. And Father, I want to thank you because in the middle of all of this chaos and all of this secularism, you are at work. You've not washed your hands of this country. You've not washed your hands of, of your church. You've not washed your hands of me or any of these people here. And Father, the good news is that anytime we come back to you, your mercies are fresh every single day. Father, give us the strength to not live compromised lives, to fix our eyes upon you, to make your story our story so that we can be a greater influence in the world than the world is on us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Hector, sir. Good morning, Lakeway. Good morning. First of all, thank you for being here. If you're new to Lakeway, we're glad to have you. For those that are online, you could have been doing something else. We're glad to have you as well. I'm going to go ahead and call the ushers up front. And as they're doing that, I want to talk about three cards that are in front of your chairs. First one is, is the offering. There's an offering envelope in there. And uh, with that offering envelope, as it goes around, you can actually throw your offering and your tithes inside that, uh, that bag. In addition, there's a connection card. We want to know about you. This is a way to connect to you and you connect to us. Fill out the card. And again, as the offering basket's going around, you can actually drop that in. We'd like to get to know you more. And last thing, in front of your chairs, there's also a prayer request. Fill that prayer request. Uh, you can keep it confidential, but this is an opportunity for our pastor or even our elders or our entire community here at Lakeway to pray for you. And uh, just go ahead and mark those cards. And as that offering envelope or basket is coming by, uh, just drop that in there as well. Let's go ahead and pray for the offering. Dear Heavenly Gracious Father, Lord, we just thank you for you. Lord, we know it's not about money. You have all the money in the world, but you just want our obedience. And so, Lord, as that offering basket is coming through, Lord, we just offer our tithes and our offerings. And, uh, Lord, we jump inside that bag. You want us. You want our hearts. And uh, whatever's keeping us from that, Lord, as that bag goes by, just jump in uh, head first. Lord, uh, allow these offerings to bless you in this kingdom and uh, to grow this church and for us to uh, reach out for those around us. Lord, thank you for your monies and thank you for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as the ushers are doing that, there's a couple of announcements I like to make. And inside your bulletin, you'll see a couple of things. First of all, group support group, uh, grief support group. Uh, we're going to start uh, grief support. If you've lost a loved one and you want uh, support, um, where's Kelly Biggs and 
Who else do we have? Kelly Biggs and Penny Pearson? Penny is the grief share. Ah, what did I say? Grief share. If, you're, if you'd like to have a grief share or be a part of a grief share, they're actually starting this uh, come June 9th through September 1st. And that's going to be here at the church from 7 to 9 p.m. in room 116. Love for you to be a part of that. If you'd like to know more about that, both Kelly and Penny's numbers are in the actual bulletin. You can call them and ask more questions. Also, uh, kids getting out of school. It's going to be a hello, so long to summer, youth uh, celebration party, opportunity to gather. To, uh, this is coming up on June 3rd, on Friday, from 7 p.m. to 12 a.m., and I'm assuming that's going to be here in the youth building. And last but not least, VBS, if you notice the sign in front of us, getting ready for uh, July 25th through the 28th, 29th. Uh, it's about Jerusalem, the marketplace. Uh, we need volunteers. Be praying about that. There's going to be uh, several opportunities to lead the children to learn about Jesus in Bible times. Uh, see Libby in the back. Uh, she's actually through that hallway watching our children right now. If you want to be a part of something special, uh, just be a part. Just say, hey, God, just use me somehow, some way. And I'm going to tell you, it's more of a blessing for us when you just say, God, just use me and commit to just being a part of something special. So, town hall meeting is going to be scheduled for? July 5th. First time I've heard of that. Okay. July 5th, immediately after this service. June 5th. All right, as Pastor Mike is giving me the announcements from the sidebar, it's like, honey, I could drive. Honey, I could drive. No, that's fine. Oh, we're live. Sorry. With that said, why don't everybody stand up real quick? Before I close in prayer, just turn around and tell the person next to you hello and just give them, just say, have a blessed week. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that feel good? Yes. Dear Heavenly Gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for this week. Lord, I thank you for this message. It does talk about a secular world that we live in, but we know you're still doing your work. Lord, allow us to be the people that you've called us to be. Allow us to say and do the things that honor and glorify you, protect us and guide us. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we all say, Amen. you are dismissed. Y'all have a blessed week.